Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. All right, Swin, the mistletoe is hanging, the the snow is it's not exactly falling, but you know, I'm in a Christmas mood. And that's why I'd like to open up with a little tale of a mischievous Christmas elf, J.D. Vance, (laughs) of Hillbilly Elegy fame, now running for the Ohio Senate. Okay. Now, J.D., obviously, he's been getting in a lot of antics on Twitter lately, but did you see his latest one about COVID concentration camps? No, 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 no. Please tell me. And also, did Mandel who's also running in the Republican field in Ohio, also getting into this? Or is this a G- just a J.D. Vance production? No, because Josh Mandel has swag, dude. Josh <laughs> Mandel is not an idiot. Josh Mandel came up on, on, on like the mean streets of conservative politics, unlike J.D. Okay, so quick, <laughs> quick reminder here, folks. J.D. Vance, this is the hillbilly elegy guy. Ron Howard made a movie about him. Uh, starring Amy Adams. This is the star child of Yale Law School. Okay, so now he's running for the Senate. And earlier this week, he tweets this thing that he's like, he retweets this guy who works at American Greatness, which is sort of a like a very Trumpian magazine associated with the Claremont Institute. It's the National Review for like New Age Francoists, basically. Yeah, that, that <laughs> that's a great way to put it. So so this guy and there's like a big thing you can do on right wing Twitter where you say either like something that is like so obviously fake and you say, is this real? Or you say apparently okay so this guy tweets biden apparently wants to restrict travel and open concentration camps and so this is a screenshot of what looks like a white house website and it says biden's winter plan learn about restrictions on cross-state travel see america's new quarantine centers and jd vance retweets this like yeah this seems like a thing that's real but would it surprise you to learn that it's not real yes yeah so here's the deal so like he falls for this thing. This is maybe the most obvious hoax ever. This is ostensibly from DHS. It lists a guy named Tim Woods as sort of the creator of this plan. As the bulwark points out, however, Tim Woods is the name of the DHS secretary in two seasons of uh, the uh, Kiefer Sutherland's 24. So perhaps this whole thing is not really that credible. Right. And to take the name of the DHS secretary in 24 and to go to the lower rent seasons of seven and eight. You're not even trying at that point. You're not even going back to the good shit during like the first four or five seasons of 24. <laughs> we might as well just be doing designated survivor at that point. So, you know, I 
I just think this, and, and so basically this thing seems to have come from 4chan, just one of these really obvious 4chan hoaxes. You know, sometimes people say I fall for 4chan hoaxes. Like one time they got really into eating onions to increase their testosterone and I tweeted about it. But I, I insist that was a real thing. I think this is a fake one. This is a hoax. JD Vance, he just is kind of going about this whole thing in a weird way. Like 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 all of his his kind of a culture war, you know, shout outs are are it, it, they're not landing right, and and so I really think uh, this primary is not going to work out for him. Oh, he's getting crushed by Josh Mandel. He's getting it, like I'm pretty sure Josh Mandel is still polling ahead of them. We'll see how that turns out as the primary keeps going. But like Josh Mandel is just like taking whatever JD Vance is spitting out and just doing an aggressively dumber version of it, but also in a weird way, kind of a savvier version of that insanely dumb thing that J.D. Vance would be doing. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's like a surgical strike version of intense dumbness. So like J.D. Vance had something that was like, you know, me and my buddy Peter Thiel, if you donate like $10,000, you can meet us at a dinner. And, you know, I mean, what a crazy thing to tweet. That's the kind of thing you say in private, right? <laughs> and so, so then Josh Mandel goes like, well, for 10 bucks, you can meet me in the Chick-fil-A parking lot. And eat lunch on the hood of my car as I campaign. I mean, these are just like layups, just 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 brutally owning this guy. Right, just, wink, wink. For like a hundred thousand uh, dollars, you can craft model legislation that I will dutifully carry yeah, right, out. Exactly. If I like, <laughs> not supposed to be that obvious about it. Is there any reasoning or try effort to ascertain where Biden would put these alleged? COVID quarantine concentration camps. Like, like I, re I remember during the Obama era, the whole FEMA death camp uh, phase of conspiracy theory. Right. A lot were going to be run out of Walmarts, if you remember that. Right. Like, there, there, there was actually a structure to that horse shit and a narrative you could sort of latch onto, even if it was just patently insane to believe it. But here, what, what is there any structure to what they're trying to pitch here? No, no, this is a screenshot. Okay, <laughs> so there's, there's they, no even... They went in the browser and they edited the HTML and they said, uh, you know, time to execute uh, plan. There's just and no they, effort they, to they, world build they here? Said, wow. No, no, there's really not. You know, I mean, the quarantine centers thing is kind of a callback, I think, to this um, th these camps they have in Australia uh, for, for quarantining. And, you know, they look like fine places, uh, but, but the American right has gotten, like, really riled up about them, and they show these videos of people saying, like, oi, why am I in this camp? <laughs> and and then, like, like they, they kind of do Sorry, a lot I'm... of, like, kind of, like, oi. American things where, like, they try to, like, poke a hole in the logic of COVID, and, like, suddenly, like, I will be free of it. And they're like, well, I can stand here, but I can't stand there. And the doctor's like, yeah. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's it. I mean, so basically, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think this whole thing is uh, is really some low effort bait from uh, from the Senate candidate. So, Swin, you've got a story for us from the, the bowels of Hollywood, uh, a tale of insurrection and adult cartoons. What's going on? OK, Will, are you familiar with the impressive TV credits and filmography of this actor and comedian named Jay Johnston. I'm more familiar with his uh, his political credits, to be honest. But 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 I understand this is a guy who was on Mr. Show and most recently Bob's Burgers as the villainous Jimmy Pesto. Right, right. I I want to be very clear as to show my like sort of fanboy bona fides here. I've been a fan of this guy's stuff since I was a kid. Like uh, he's one of those actors and comedians who, even if you don't know him by name, our listeners have seen him in something, if not many things. If you've seen the Adam McKay modern classic Anchorman, 
You've seen Jay Johnson. He is in Vince Vaughn's news gang. He is one of the guys there who's kind of like a newsman street tough who's just hanging out behind Vince Vaughn when he's squaring off with, uh, uh, with Will Ferrell. As you mentioned, he's been in Mr. Show. He's been in Arrested Development. He's been in so many different things. Have you ever seen Bob's Burgers? I've never actually seen the show. I'm aware that Jimmy Pesto, who he has voiced in recent years, is a character of renown. But I got to be honest, I've never seen the show. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me that you haven't seen Bob's Burgers. I feel like every millennial is required to watch it at some point, because if only to understand all these people who are like, I'm a Tina or whatever, you know, I mean. So, oh, my God, this so, yeah, is going yeah, over yeah, my I, head. What the fuck are you talking about? What does this mean? So, yeah. So, so, I've, so I've seen Bob's Burgers. Yes. I mean, so so he plays Bob's nemesis. Okay, so uh, Jesse Cannon, can we play a clip of Jimmy Pesto here? That's right. Mm, for people with mustache cancer? Yeah, it's a serious disease. Hey, aren't you uh, Bob's kid? No. No, no. Dad, Frank and Zelda both got to scampy, and now they're in the bathroom puking. Oh, for God's sake. Where am I going to get another piano player at this hour? Well, we can put on some boys to men, and I can slow dance. Hey, Pepper, no. For the thousandth time, no. It's my passion, Dad. Ah. Passion! I know a guy. Okay, so the guy voicing that, let's rewind the clock a little bit. Back in March, the FBI tweeted out uh, two photos of a guy's face saying, basically, we want to know where this guy is. Do you know where he is? Uh, Basically implying that we suspect him of taking part in the violent insurrection that occurred in Washington, D.C., inspired by Donald Trump on January 6, 2021. This is when the FBI was going crazy and basically just tweeting out all kinds of photos of people's faces being like, do you know where this suspected rioter is? Please help us track him or her down. We would like to talk to this individual or maybe even throw on the handcuffs. One of the faces they tweeted out in March, people started replying to the FBI being like, this guy looks a lot like Jay Johnston, (laughs) who voices Jimmy Pesto on Bob's Burgers. If you Search this on Twitter, you will see that there are numerous tweets of people just straight up saying, well, if a character in Bob's Burgers was going to be at the January 6th riot, it would 100% be Jimmy Pesto Sr. Will, I'll have you vouch for that because I don't know that much about the character, but that seems to scan correctly. Yeah, I mean, he's a bad guy. I mean, I love the idea of like, you know, all these, you know, Ryan Riley at the HuffPost has done stuff about all these people like combing over these pictures and just like the idea of someone being like, why that's a... a a semi-famous character actor. Right, is that, right. Is that Steven Root? You know, something <laughs> like that. So this came up in the spring. I think we talked about it on the podcast. There was this uncertainty. A lot of people who had worked with him, they were like, yeah, it sure looks like him. Um, but now you have an update. Right, right. At the time, there were some news articles published on this, but they all had question marks in the headline. Uh, PolitiFact at the time described it as unproven that Jay Johnson was actually there at the Capitol on January 6th. So it was this kind of weird thing where for months since March of this year, it was kind of floating out there as a big question mark that when I was Googling around about it a few days ago, noticed that there wasn't really that, there wasn't a resolution to it. There was no update. There was no actual uh, investigative reporting, shall we say, on the matter. So a couple of other guys at the Daily Beast and I decided to actually get in on this and try to figure out what the hell was going on. So over the past few days, we have published a brief series on trying to get to the bottom of the mystery of was Jay Johnson actually there among the Capitol rioters on that fateful day. The first story we put out, we confirmed uh, that he he has actually been banned from Bob's Burgers. (laughs) 
<laughs> like the the top cast and crew at the show, they're not coming out and publicly saying it, but we confirmed based on knowledgeable sources that uh, he's just n- not welcome on the, the show anymore. They're not writing for the Jimmy Pesto character anymore, or at the very least, they're not writing for him. And that because of the Capitol riot, poor Jay Johnson has at the very least lost his job at this hit long-running Fox animated sitcom. I want to be very clear. That alone means that Jay Johnson has been held more accountable by the people at Fox, by the people at Bob's Burgers, than Donald Trump, who led the fucking violent coup, has been by the Republican Party. It's madness. Do you have a sense of like how they're going to write him off? Uh, zero, zero idea. Um, it's been a while since I've been an actual full-on entertainment reporter. I'm getting my toes wet in that field a little bit more. Um, I will leave that up to be determined by entertainment reporters. Better source than me. Maybe like, you know, my, my, Bob might be like, where's Jimmy Pesto? And then someone will say, he's one of the January 6th political prisoners in the D.C. Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> okay. Again, I wish I could find this funnier than I actually do. I really need to watch the show. Is it? I, I'm I'm missing out on. I keep seeing people saying that it's one of the best animated shows of all time. <laughs> well, that's kind of a low bar to clear, isn't it? But like, I mean, so, <laughs> so so yeah. So so, but but there's been a there's been a development since then. Okay, so something else we discovered as we asked more and more people about it, including in the entertainment industry, within comedy circles, who have known Jay for years, is that many of them. Ever since the FBI apparently tweeted his face back in March. By the way, that's a hell of a thing to happen if you are uh, some character actor or comedian working in Hollywood for the FBI to tweet your face being like, is this man a violent insurrectionist? It's also, I think, kind of a, a poor comment on your success in Hollywood, right? Like, you know, these guys, these character actors, their trouble always is that they're, people are like, that guy, you know? And even the FBI can't, can't recognize him. Right, exactly. That was the other kicker to it. Like, if John Voight, who is also incredibly conspiracy theory-minded and pro-Trump, if he were at the January 6th riot, the FBI would not need to tweet his face. He'd be instantly recognizable. And they'd be like, oh, let's go pick up John Voight. But no, Jay Johnson, I'm a big fan of his. Unfortunately, not enough people at the FBI are. So when we were talking to more and more people in the entertainment space who've known Jay for a long time, they kept telling us that we're his friends or former friends, I should say, and we're having trouble finding the guy. I cannot tell you how many people in that orbit were saying how weird it was that they couldn't get any first or secondhand information on his whereabouts since March of this year. They couldn't figure out where he is or living right now. They can't get him on the phone. They don't know if he's, if he's talked to the feds yet. They have no idea if he's lawyered up. He does have lawyers in his family, or immediate family, but it's still kind of a black box of what the hell is actually going on until October of this year, when he actually showed up to a premiere and party event for a movie that he shot in December 2020 that is coming out soon. It's a movie called Wing Dad, which tells the story of, quote, a coffee shop that's struggling to survive during the pandemic, but it goes deeper into the father's alcoholism and how the family is coping with that. That's a hell of a log line, by the way. Like, oh, wow, sounds like a fabulous movie. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to see it. Wing Dad. <laughs> Jay Johnson plays Alan, the estranged father who has the drinking problem, who the family is trying to rehabilitate. Our, uh, one of our colleagues at the Daily Beast, senior entertainment uh, editor Marlo Stern, for this second story we did on uh, the insane Jay Johnston saga, uh, spoke to people who made this movie. He spoke to them on the record, and the director straight up confirmed to us on the record that 
oh yeah, when I spoke to Jay, he said he was there. He claimed he didn't go inside the Capitol, but he was like, oh yeah, that was me. <laughs> so I think this is the first hardest kind of confirmation we have that, yes, we can put it to rest. Jay Johnston is not coming out publicly right now to confirm any of this stuff, but unless he's playing a massive prank on these people or something else like that, I think we can safely say that, yes, he was there and that the FBI did tweet his face. But I want to read uh, something from the director who we talked to about how this went down. He says, quote, I reached out to him. I was curious about him walking into the Capitol because I feel like that's a really big offense to our democracy and our nation. That's horrific, Lucas Astrum, the director of the movie Wing Dad, told the Daily Beast. But he said he was just at the protest and didn't go into the Capitol physically. So I have to take him at his word on that. He hasn't been convicted or served or arrested. But yeah, I asked him about it and he said like, yeah, he was there and he believed there was fraud and just wanted to show his support. <laughs> so imagine this, right? You are working on a zero budget movie. You know, it, it, it's the middle of the pandemic and, you know, it's some depressing movie about an alcoholic in a coffee shop. And then it's like, oh, bad news. The star of your film was allegedly involved in the insurrection. So here's a quote from the, the writer, which for my mind just blew right. my pa mind. Paige Feldman, who co-wrote the movie, also spoke to us on the record. And Will, go ahead. For an alleged insurrectionist to be the star, star of the first feature I wrote, it is a less than ideal. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I cannot wait for the cast of Wing Dad to be subpoenaed uh, in D.C. federal court and, you know, forced to testify at Jay John. Obviously, Jay Johnson has not been charged with anything, but, uh, you know, we shall see. Right. And just to cap this off, Feldman continued, quote, I'm really proud of the work I did on this film and to have that tainted by an actor's actions is a little painful. End quote. Well, this has been your Hollywood watch. You know, we keep up with all the character actors who appeared in Washington during it's the It's our bread the and riot. butter. We, we had Nick Searcy of Justified Fame. Now we've got Jay Johnston. We're keeping an eye out. We'll let you know who else uh, pops up. Okay, next up, Swin. Uh, you, you know, speaking of, uh, I guess I would say, unsavory characters, we know who the Proud Boys are. But Swin, are you familiar with the Black Hammer organization? That's not the thing that started World War One, right? No, that would be the, the Black Hand. Which, That's by a Black the way, Hand, okay. I note that Gavrilo Princip is the villain in the new Kingsman movie. So anyway, <laughs> so, so so watch for that, history fans. Cannot but anyways, wait. So this is a group called Black Hammer that I've had my eyes on for a little while. They're a pretty interesting group, and it always kind of seems like they're about to break through and get a little more attention. And, and then, you know, they finally did last week. So let, let me set these guys up, because I think they're going to be popping up again and again. So this is a group called Black Hammer. They're based out of Georgia. They're like a radical black nationalist group. They're led by this gentleman named Ghazi Kodzo, who is a, a very, you know, I guess I'm struggling to describe his deal because he like dresses up as the Joker and issues these like really bizarre proclamations. I mean, Black Hammer previously was in the news for uh for for like really bashing and going in on Anne Frank. Which, you know, is, is obviously a pretty tasteless thing to do. But but basically, like, the, the reason they're – so for a while, they were useless, useful to the right because, I mean, th this guy just loves attention, essentially. And he has a group around – people around him. You know, some ex-members have called it a cult. But he has a group of people around him. And Fox News, for example, loves tweeting, like, you know, Black Lives Matter leader uh, goes after Anne Frank. I mean, this guy has no larger support until now. Right. It's like calling Farrakhan a Black Lives Matter 
leader, basically. Right, right, exactly, exactly. But I will say, you know, at, at least with uh, Louis Farrakhan, there's an ethos, right? I mean, with 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 Black Hammer, I mean, these guys are really, really, uh, really out there. Right. It's like one step removed, maybe one step above or below, depending on how you define. But by those guys in Chinatown in Washington D.C. who just who just yell at tourists, and that's all they do, and that's like. It's like trying to claim that those guys are envoys of an actual progressive movement. Right, right. It, it, it's kind of a similar vibe. So so he has Gavin McGinnis, Proud Boys founder, supposedly no longer connected to the Proud Boys, you know, vice co-founder, although he obviously... Has- oh, I, I, I wonder I wonder why he's, he no longer feels uh, indebted <laughs> yeah. to that group. <laughs> yes, the heat on for the Proud Boys. So anyways, so, so he has... I mean, these are two guys who are like these kind of like two provocateurs on... And they, they they have a video chat, and now Ghazi Kodzo claims that this this meeting with Gavin McGinnis means that the Proud Boys and Black Hammer are going to have an alliance. Okay, okay, I have to read this uh, social media post <laughs> announcing it. You heard it here first. The Black Hammer organization and the Proud Boys are forming a coalition, all caps, forming a coalition, to defeat the disgusting, pedo-loving, welfare economy demoncrats and their puppet master, Big Pharma, who has been poisoning all of us for too long. Well, by golly, that sounds exactly like Chuck Schumer. There's no daylight between that and the mainstream Democratic Party. Right. So, so I mean, this is obviously these are two guys who love getting attention. But but I will say so this was a, a listener request to explain what's the deal with Black Hammer now that they supposedly have an alliance with the Proud Boys. I mean, I, I will say this is kind of a, a time of chaos for the Proud Boys. Uh, leader Enrique Tario is still imprisoned in D.C. So do they have an alliance? Perhaps. The other thing I should say is Whenever you hear that there is like a Black Lives Matter group protesting vaccines, it's pretty much always these guys. So how like, many example, are there? Uh, well, it fluctuates, right? Because people are uh, like, I mean, this is th- th- we're talking like Linwood levels of internal drama here. So, I mean, people are constantly leaving the Black Hammer mansion uh, in Georgia and, you know, posting all, all these accusations against each other, which all of which are completely impossible to prove because no one will ever call the police. Do they have like an influencer mansion in Georgia? Well, yeah. A, <laughs> I mean, they is this like a, is this like a Jake Paul or Logan Paul type deal, but for like really stupid Trumpian version of black nationalism? <laughs> You're right to compare it to that. I mean, they're constantly YouTubing. I mean, the, the these guys like they they do a lot of really like attention getting stunts. So, you know, after Nicki Minaj did the famous thing where she was like, my cousin's best friend, his testicles exploded when he got the vaccine. They had a protest in front of the CDC in support of Nicki Minaj. And, you know, all, all these right wingers go crazy. They, they love it. And they they see this. This is evidence that, um, you, you know, they're, they're going to make these inroads in the black community. Uh, but I have to say, like the as long as we're sort of setting up the deal with Black Hammer, I feel like I have to talk about the the failure of their attempt to create a city earlier this year. In- when did this happen? I must have missed this. Right. So this was in May. So this was a thing they were going to call Hammer City. And so they raised like 70 grand to do this thing. And they claimed we bought all this land in Colorado. That's all the money you need to create a city. <laughs> Everyone knows well, right. you need less, <laughs> less than six figures to make a city. Got a it. clean 70 grand. I mean, this is I, I should say everyone involved in this also has names like like subcommandante, whatever. I mean, like like this is like a ostensibly a paramilitary group. The only reason I know about this is because this was really breathlessly covered in the right wing press uh, as sort of this um, 
like like the new version of uh, Chaz in Seattle. Like this was going to be this like really radical group in Seattle, in Colorado. As it turns out, however, it didn't go great. So here's a tweet they sent after they had purchased this land. Or so they thought. little foreshadowing there. Uh, Black Hammer has successfully liberated 200 acres of land to build our city for colonized people only. We are located high up in the mountains in the air with rich soil. We have one lake and three rivers on the land. And, and there's a lot of like, you, you know, there was a lot of talk about how this was going to be this kind of like uh, utopia for people. And, and it was going to be this sort of new radical group. As you sort of suggested there, Swin, 70 grand does not get you that far in the city building game. I had some conversations with the sheriff out in Colorado about this. It turned out Black Hammer thought they had purchased this land, but they had actually not. They had failed to purchase it. And so that the owner of the land uh, eventually had to call the police and get them evicted for trespassing because there were essentially all these these Black Hammer activists camping on their land. Uh, And they, you know, I watched a body cam video where the cops were like, hey, um, that can't be your city. (laughs) And they said, oh, 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 we we thought we bought it, though. And they said, yeah, well, like, it's sort of like, well, this is why people have realtors because, you know, it kind of fell apart in escrow. This is why you need the Selling Sunset crew. You know, I mean, so basically they, they 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 sadly were were told that the police would come and get them if they did not see themselves out. And they just saw themselves out. I take it. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the ultimate radical stuff. You know, when the cops, the cops didn't even show up on the land. They just said, hey, I'm, I'm calling you from uh, like 50 miles away. I, I hear you're doing a crime. Uh, I'm going to give you a warning. OK. And then they said, OK, well, bye. You know, we'll go uh, maybe build our radical collective in Atlanta instead. Okay, maybe they just weren't trying hard enough on this. So maybe you and I should cobble together, like, I don't know, $2,500 and go try to buy the old executive office building on the uh, White House property. Maybe maybe start a little smaller. Maybe we'll build a hamlet, the Fever Dreams, <laughs> Fever Dreams hamlet. Right, we'll set up a tent in front of it and say we have purchased these squares of the sidewalk. This is why, I mean, like, a city is way too ambitious. you got to start with, like, a compound, right? I mean, you, you know, some of these QAnon groups, they, they have compounds. And, you know, like, uh, the, the JFK Jr. group in Dallas, which is way bigger than Black Hammer, I mean, they just have, like, a couple hotel rooms right now. So, you know, you can't really start out with a city. But, but the reason I bring up Black Hammer... Oh, they should have gone with that. You buy a hotel, but really, the fine print says you're just staying at a hotel for a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're not gonna kick you out if you keep paying i mean it's great yeah no i mean I, I think that's a great idea so the reason i bring up black hammer is uh you know i i think their quote-unquote alliance with the proud boys here suggests that that they will continue to be a, a presence uh, in the right-wing media going into 2022 i mean certainly the gateway pundit like loves breathlessly covering whatever they do and you know will they try to make a new city you know maybe this time they'll They'll hire a realtor and figure this one out. So it, it's one that bears watching. If they got Gavin McGinnis on their side, I mean, they can maybe bump that up to, I don't know, $77,000 at this point. So just just a couple of things before we wrap up this segment. What in their ideology, if they're now tweeting or or posting about pedo-loving welfare economy demoncrats, was there ever anything in their ideology that made it seem like they were like avowed left wingers? I'm I'm a little bit confused here because I I know like all that Fox News needs for a headline is like oh I see some black people let's yeah time to Black Lives Matter but was there ever actually anything that grounded them in any form of leftism whatsoever? Yeah, I mean I I I think that they're supposed to be like radical Marxists essentially. Then why do they not like welfare economy? <laughs> Well, right. I mean, this has sort of turned out to be a little bit of horseshoe theory in that in that they they've they've come so far around that 
you know, now they hate vaccines and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I do think potentially that maybe this opens us up to the creation of a Black Hammer Proud Boys city. Or maybe, you know, the Proud Boys have some pretty strict ethos in terms of, uh, you know, they beat you up until you can name five cereals and stuff. So I'm, I'm not sure. This alliance, there might be some inherent tensions here. Okay, well, de- definitely keep us posted, especially if they start erecting their next city in suburban Ohio near Cincinnati. I would be very interested if that were the case. Now, Will, what do you have next for us? Sure. So the, on this week's interview, I, you know, first of all, I have to ask you, Swin, did you ever see Johnny Depp's Black Mass in which he plays the infamous Boston gangsta Whitey Bulger? Yeah, that came out like 2015 or 2016. Loved it. I heard that they had to cut out like a third or a quarter of the movie. Like they don't show it when Whitey Bulger is on the run from the feds. That was supposed to be a big chunk of the movie. And that just does not exist in it. I liked it so much. It was one of those movies that I thought should be like eight hours long as opposed to the couple of hours or whatever it was. But yes, I really liked it. Yeah, I mean, I I liked it as well. I mean, although I should say for the listeners, you were also a big fan of Gotti. So let's take Swin's movie reviews with an asterisk here. That's just good irony. Black Mass <laughs> was actually a legitimate, critically acclaimed movie. Like, it, it, it's not it's not great, but it's solid. It's solid. I really liked it. So the reason I bring this up is this week on the pod, we have journalist Dick Lair, who is the co-author of Black Mass. Now his new book is White Hot Hate, the inside story of a 2015 domestic terrorism plot in Kansas. Dick linked up with the uh, federal informant in the case and so sort of got the the inside scoop on what what was going to be an attempt to bomb a, an immigrant mosque. You know, I, I, obviously this kind of domestic terror stuff is very relevant in the aftermath of January 6th, though so I, uh, I think it should be an interesting conversation. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, today on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Dick Lair. He's a journalism professor at Boston University and the author of numerous books. Uh, Most recently, he's written White Hot Hate the story of a domestic terrorism plot in Kansas. Uh, you know, I, it, obviously domestic terrorism is a very hot topic right now. And uh, Dick got a lot of great access inside this case. Uh, it, it, you know, you know, I think that really shows you how, how one of these plots goes down and then the FBI responds to it. Uh, so, you know, we're glad to have him on the show. Dick, thanks for joining us. Sure, thank you. So for people who aren't familiar with this Garden City, Kansas plot, if you could set up for us what, what exactly was going to happen here and, uh, and your story, your book really, which is about this informant, Dan Day, who got inside it. Yeah, sure. So we're talking about 2016, just over four years ago, and, and with the backdrop being, you know, the presidential race with uh, then-candidate Donald Trump 
calling for a Muslim ban. And what unfolded in the uh, southwest corner of Kansas was a group of far-right white nationalists who decided that the Somali refugees, this was a destination as part of the state for Somali refugees who were filling up the meatpacking plants, working there, shifts around the clock. These white nationalists decided that, you know, Muslims were not only unwelcome in America, but those who were already here had to be eradicated. And they began conspiring to build, officially the charge was a weapons of mass destruction in order to, with homemade explosive, bomb the the Muslims uh, who lived in Garden City, bomb them to smithereens. The sentencing judge in the case, because gladly (laughs) the bombs did not go off, they were thwarted before that ever happened. The sentencing judge said, had they succeeded, the devastation and death would have been worse than Timothy McVeigh's handiwork at the, in Oklahoma City. And so, you know, your book really tracks the the journey of Dan Day, who's this guy who gets involved with this group as an FBI informant. First of all, how did he he get involved with with these potential terrorists? And then how did he link up with the FBI? They kind of went hand in hand. You know, he's a lifelong Kansas, grew up, born and raised and lives in Garden City. I'd say he's part of the broader law enforcement world uh, in the sense that he had been a guard at a juvenile detention facility. And then he had been a probation officer. He was out of work in 2015, 2016. And out of curiosity, um, he had kind of a strange series of events over a weekend. He had gone to a, a former colleague cookout. He thought it was a cookout. And in fact, it, it turned to be a recruiting cookout for the three percenters militia. And the local FBI resident agents, a couple of agents, were generally monitoring online some of the uptick in you know rhetoric on, on Facebook and social media coming from the militias and and sort of the hate-filled kind of rhetoric. And and they saw some things online that came out of this barbecue. And uh, they talked to one person and then another person. And and, and that other person was Dan Day, uh, having been, having attended that. In the beginning, it was awkward and, and surprising. Dan had no interest in joining the militia. But one agent in particular took to Dan thinking that this is the kind of guy that maybe could serve as our eyes and ears. And that's what that's how it began. Um, which, and they asked him, would he just join the militia and kind of just provide intelligence? And so in the fall of 2015, that's how it began. Um, at the front end, uh, Dan Day had no idea where how dark and deep it was going to go the next year during 2016. So how close did they actually get to pulling this off? They got busted in October, just a few weeks before voting in November of 2016 in the presidential campaign. Their goal was to to fire it off shortly after the election. I think they were a few weeks away. That's that's a you know they'd gotten that close. The key was at the end of the summer and early September. And again, this is just you know it's not like I know a lot about homemade bomb making, but in learning from the research and reporting here, the hardest part in putting together a massive fertilizer bomb is the blasting cap, the detonator, because the materials are very unstable. They had succeeded doing that. Two of the um, conspirators, a guy named Curtis Allen and Gavin Wright, had basically taken the lead on the, the research and developing of the homemade explosives. And together, again, late August, early September, they had succeeded testing a blasting cap and had done it again. And then at that point, it's like, just let's get the, you know, rounding up the fertilizer, packing it in the cars, you know, and and really finalizing a so-called execution plan. Uh, This is maybe an unknowable answer to a question, but 
If the FBI had not been there posing as a black market arms dealer, would these guys actually have the means and opportunity to perpetrate this kind of murderous act? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And in some ways it is unknowable. Like I said, the guys independently, Curtis Allen, Gavin Wright, and then Patrick Stein, who was kind of the most outspoken and most aggressive, they had succeeded in making that blasting cap. And fertilizer is not hard to come by as Patrick Stein liked to say, he being a farmer. So while this was never, never did they come across as a finely tuned organization. It's amazing when, you know, reading the meetings and the transcripts, how inefficient they were in many respects, how they would go off on some tangent discussing, you know, it could be anything and then looping back. Okay, what are we doing? You know, but they were on track. They didn't need the FBI. They didn't need at the end, the FBI you're referring to, they had inserted a second informant, a trained undercover agent who was posing as an arms dealer. So they could have pulled it off on their own. In terms of this plot that uh, started taking shape circa the 2016 presidential election, uh, what do you think there is in terms of relevance of what you've deeply reported here to something circa January 6, 21? Obviously, there was a lot of malicious stuff going on there, um, not just in Washington, D.C. on January 6, but in terms of related movements that sort of gravitated to that in the aftermath of the attempted coup and the riot as sort of a uh, call to action. What do you see as sort of a connective tissue between those disparate events? Yeah, no, I, well, I see, you know, obviously when I was researching and writing this book in 2019 on January 6th of earlier this year had not happened. But once it did happen, it, it I mean, you can, I, to me, this, this event in 2016, again, thankfully the bombs didn't go off. To me, it just, it's like a foreshadows. It's a precursor to not only Jan- last January 6th, but also the takeover in Michigan of the state capitol. It captures the, um, and showcases the um, far-right extremism that was, you know, you know, developing and flourishing, um, what, and what I call white, the white-hot hate that was, you know, obviously gaining traction. This was at the front end of that, I think, you know, in 2016. And I think it was catching the FBI, at least the, um, at the top levels, a little bit off guard um, because they've been so focused and understandably so on, you know, international foreign terrorists like ISIS and al-Qaeda. But on the ground and in, you know, out in you know, southwest Kansas, again, a couple of FBI agents, you know, detected something different underway. And I think this is the front end. I think that you can draw a fairly straight line between the events in, in Garden City, Kansas um, in 2016 and, and, and what's exploded in a way, you know, in, in our present moment regarding these this violence, this militia violence. So, you know, you mentioned this this concept of this white hot hate. I mean, in your book, the, the sort of inciting incident for this this terrorism is that they're, they're very mad about the Pulse nightclub shooting. But, but what do you think the other causes uh, that would inspire the, these people to the, decide that, oh, you know, we're just going to go, uh, we're going to do this terrorism? What do you think the other causes are for that? Well, I think, I mean, they're racism, they're racists. I think um, social media and Facebook and far right media are to me, a major theme in this book, in the sense that the three co-conspirators um, who are now serving time in prison, now they're all angry men. They're all angry white men who have felt left out and marginalized and full of hate and rage. And they found themselves on Facebook, you know, just like, in, you know, this is a story and a theme we hear about time and time again for this far right and, and, you know, movement and whatnot. They were devoted to Alex Jones, for example, especially uh, the one conspirator named Curtis Allen, part and parcel with developing their, you know, experimenting and putting together the bomb was their decision that they also needed to author a manifesto 
you know, calling calling out patriots all, all across America once the bombs have gone off to join them. And they were taking a page out of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. And Curtis Allen, um, you know, they talked about the timing. He was he was writing that. And should we should we release it before the bombs go off, after the bombs go off? And they're talking about, you know, who they're going to call out. I mean, Curtis Allen brags that he has Alex Jones, I mean, I'm not saying I believe him, phone number, and he would, Alex would put him on the air so he could read the manifesto. That's the kind of thinking that was going on in their heads as they, you know, this, all this stuff was smoldering. It was reinforced time and again by their um, social media and their Facebook presence, and also by presidential candidate Donald Trump, you know, who that very summer, you know, in, in the, on the campaign trail was calling for the Muslim ban. So all these things are, you know, are are coming together in this um, confluence of events. Did they specifically cite Donald Trump in any of their communications or any of their writings? Yeah, no, you, the transcripts of the tapes, um, they're basically cheerleading Donald Trump. Obviously, he was a, considered a long shot in the presidential race. So they purposely were waiting until after the election. They didn't want to do anything that might hurt Donald Trump in the election. That's nice of them. Yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> their own timetable. They loved it. I don't know if you recall, there was that awful exchange involving Donald Trump and Megyn Kelly in terms of an interview during over the course of the camp that year. Right, where he made uh, period blunt implications. Yes. They were laughing at that. And, you know, that, that came up and how, you know, that they thought Donald Trump, you know, go one on one with her again and he would just chew her up and spit her out and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, they were. Definitely into Donald Trump. So, you know, uh, Dick, you've written two books about Whitey Bulger. So, you, you know, you're, you're no stranger to the idea of, uh, you know, these FBI relationships with informants going wrong. Now, I mean, there's so much just discussion about the FBI. Are, are they setting people up with these stings? Are they kind of using agent provocateurs or pushing them? BuzzFeed just had a story about the supposed uh, Whitmer kidnapping plot in Michigan and the question of, you know, was there FBI malfeasance there? Or, you know, this question of like, do you have too many informants and are, are they driving the plot? plot. I'd be curious about what you make about that issue as it comes to this story. I mean, I think people might look at it and say, well, they, you know, the FBI connected them with someone that they thought was an arms dealer. I mean, could this plot really have gotten off the ground? I mean, what do you think the issues are in terms of the FBI and, and running these informants uh, into terrorist groups? Yeah, no, that's a great question and, and an important subject, because believe me, I'm made reference to Whitey Bulger and the FBI, and the historic informant scandal. That was out of Boston. Yeah, no, I'm I'm well aware of, of FBI malfeasance and their capability of, of wrongdoing and whatnot. You know, when I got into and had the opportunity to research and report this story, um, believe me, I, I was looking for that possibility, go where the story goes, and I didn't see it. And I'm not saying it's it's not the case in maybe some of these other cases that have come up that BuzzFeed's you know written about in, in Michigan or whatnot. What I know from this instance, to me, this is a case where this is how it's supposed to happen, you know, in terms of playing by the rules and in terms of, you know, entrapment, uh, which is illegal versus a sting. You know, the defense, no surprise. I mean, the defense at the trial of the of the three conspirators, one of their principal legal defenses and arguments was that the clients were entrapped by Dan Day, who set this up. And if if not for Dan Day, none of this would have ever happened. These guys were just, you know, you know, yes, they're racist. You may not like them, but they're not terrorists. You know, that whole argument and whatnot. And we have to be really 
sensitive to that. I mean, be in eyes wide open, because in my mind, there's no question the FBI is capable of entrapment and, and wrongdoing. But it was fascinating in this, if you really drill down as who is able to do or as anyone is able to do in this instance, Dan Day was not present when, when they put together the blasting cap, you know, he was not in the picture. There's a lot of things that were happening in that small cabal that, again, Dan Day couldn't have been there, couldn't have been the ringleader, couldn't have been the maestro um, in terms of advancing this conspiracy. He was a silent partner in so many ways. I don't think that's part of this dynamic. And like I say, if I saw it, I would have called it out for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, so, so let's talk about that informant, uh, Dan Day. I mean, he, he's kind of the the hero of the story. You know, obviously, we hear a lot about informants who have some, you know, people who cooperate because they have some criminal liability of their own. I mean, that's not the case in in his situation. I mean, what do you think his, his motivation was? I mean, it, it struck me as, as pretty unique for an informant. Yeah, no, I think his law enforcement background, like I said, generally speaking, and for me, this is in some ways hard to kind of grasp. I mean, he is really religious and Christian and is with his wife and his son talking about doing this and the role he would be playing. You know, they do and they're genuine convincing about it as being part of God's plan. He subscribes to a lot of, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say a lot, but like he's an ardent Second Amendment gun possessing, you know, he, he carries all the time, feels really strongly about gun rights, gun ownership rights and all that stuff. So some of his views overlapped with um, many members of any militia, never mind these extremists and whatnot. You know, and I, and I, this came across and spending lots of hours, which genuine. I mean, you don't kill people the way they were planning to kill people. It's live and let live. And and if he could do something to stop that, as it took this dark turn in the beginning, he was just a casually observing this stuff. But as these guys anointed themselves the Crusaders, Stein, Gavin Wright, and Curtis Allen decided to go after and build bombs, he felt that if he could do something to prevent needless death, that that was his calling. Beyond just this plot, what is the message you want people to take away from the book? Or, or you know, what, what do you think we, we can learn about this from the book, uh, about this sort of, in, in this plot, about the, the state of our politics now? It's awfully terrifying and challenging at once. I mean, in my mind, this is a story that moves from, you know, revealing in graphic and dramatic detail, again, that white hot hate that is part of the American present. But it also is a story about justice, which is really, I think, in, embodied by Dan Day, at least in this instance, you know, justice is achieved. And finally, I think, you know, there's there's hope at the outcome because the bombs did not go off. This is one of the reasons I wanted to write about this is because the bombs didn't go off, you know, and to take a look at something that in, in the end, and, it, and I think it, it bears out that it, that it worked uh, the way it's supposed to work. And that the Somali community, which had a target on its back, from these three conspirators who were determined to kill them. In, in the moments after the arrests, when everything you know, was stopped in its tracks, and I write about it this way, for a moment, there was such fear in the Somali community that things hung in the balance in the sense that it was as if the bomb did go off because they all wanted to flee. This, suddenly they're back in Somalia with terrorism and explosions, potential explosions. And yet this community that's just kind of this unique community that's so diverse out in, in the middle of nowhere, whether it was the police chief who had taken on a Somali as, as a member of the force or the city manager and a whole bunch of city residents, you know, they rallied, they, you know, and, and said, no, you know, this is crazy. You're welcome here. So there's some hopefulness in that and something that a lot of the rest of America could uh, 
take a lesson and a takeaway from, I think. Sure. And Dick, before we let you get going, um, I'm going to ask you something that I'm going to take a wild guess. You're probably sick of discussing after all these years, but to hell with it. I'm going to ask it to you anyway, because I'm fascinated by it. Uh, you have written extensively. You are perhaps one of the two premier reporters in the country on James Whitey Bulger. Uh, you've written books about him and also his involvement with the FBI. Obviously, one of your books was turned into the Johnny Depp movie Black Mass that came out a few years ago. Did Whitey Bulger ever get in touch with you to uh, try to yell at you about your reporting being alleged fake news or do you ever try anything worse than that? I wish, but not the worst part. <laughs> I wish so. When we were writing our second book, which is a full bi- full-length biography of Whitey Bulger, and he had you know been captured, this was after 2011, and he was awaiting trial outside of Boston in a prison. You know, I wrote him like five times. I, you know, I wanted an audience with him. I wanted to talk to him and do interviews if we could and then hear his white hot hate, (laughs) whatever you might want to say. No, I mean, that's always been uh, in some ways a regret that we weren't able to have some kind of interview with him and get his, although I know, I think I know what he would say because he, (laughs) (laughs) I, I'm not a rat. How dare you say I'm a rat, basically. When he was free and when you were doing your initial reporting, was he someone who was known in Boston of reaching out to reporters either to gab or or, or perhaps to confront, shall we say, them about reporting he didn't like? No, he never did. And, you know, and what's interesting is that especially after he was captured, he would reach out. He would have end up developing pen pals with with fans or just people. And he would use his letters as a, a as a platform to get out his views. What, what we figured out, and I'm not alone in this, because there were probably a, a handful of Boston-based journalists who had become Whitey Bulger experts after all these years. And we all wanted to interview him, um, you know, whether it's radio, television, or obviously print, the Boston Globe, but he would never do it. And I think the reason why, I think we've kind of agreed that he never wanted to be interviewed or be in the same room with someone who knew a lot about him and what he did. And that's what's so smart about it. He always wanted, yeah, he'll respond to someone who writes him a, a kind of a fan letter and then get to speak one way through that person who then turns around and releases the contents of the letters. Like I was never an informant, all that kind of stuff. But he never wanted to um, put himself in a position where he, someone with a lot of knowledge could be questioning him. And similarly, on his federal trial, he kept saying through his attorney that he was going to take the witness stand. None of us truly believed it. But in the end, he didn't, of course. And I think the reason why is that he didn't want to expose himself to a prosecutor who could ask him tough questions. So he never did reach out to reporters. Just sort of fascinating to me that, you know, this kind of notorious, world-famous thug who uh, just has no problem picking on uh, shop owners in Southie or people who would uh, piss him off in gangland. Uh, you're doing all this aggressive reporting on him, and for some reason, he doesn't try to molest you in any way. Yeah, I know. Well, I hope, thankfully. The one time he did kind of what I'll say, I mean, I won't even call it an interview. It's interesting. There was a documentary, an interesting documentary done, again, oh, five, six years ago. And of course, documentarians would want to have a prison interview with Whitey Bulger, but he refused, and not surprising, but the, they needed his voice and needed his sound in some ways. And I think they made a huge compromise because... What they ended up agreeing to is they filmed Whitey's lawyer on a telephone call with Whitey, and the Whitey's lawyer could ask Whitey questions, and and the documentarians could film that event. But it was like, so journalistically, it was like laugh out loud, sadly, because the lawyer was saying, hey, "James, you've never killed anybody, have you?" And 
go, oh, of course not. You've never had a woman, have you? No, no. So it was like, this is an interview, please. You know. But anyway, that's the closest I think it came. But again, it was all again in in, in a way that Whitey could control. He was such a control freak. Dick, unfortunately, we're gonna have to get going. I could talk to you for hours about this and other topics, but we'd love to have you back some other time. Please keep doing what you're doing. It was great having you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And again, the book is called White Hot Hate. Dick, thanks so much. You're welcome. Moving on, for this week's installment of our beloved recurring Fresh Hell segment, Will Summer. It's basically mandated in your Daily Beast contract, and of course your Fever Dreams contract, that you have to watch every live stream, if not go in person, to every single TPUSA conference event in the nation. Is that correct? Well, I wish I could go in person. I, I, that, I mean, you, you, you're correct on the, the, the broad strokes here, but... Sadly, uh, there is sort of a, I, I think, a standing ban on on giving Will a press pass to TPUSA events, but but that's okay because they're live streamed. <laughs> this most recent one happened. Was it this weekend or this week? Yeah. So 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 last weekend, this uh, TPUSA Turning Point USA, which is increasingly not only the hub for young conservatives, but like for the the entire conservative movement, uh, I would say, uh, they they held America Fest. Which was a rocking good time. How many America Fests do they have a year? I feel like I'm constantly inundated on social media of these like humiliatingly poorly put together TPUSA America Fest graphics. Or is it just that because of the pandemic, a year feels like it goes way faster than it usually does? Well, I think they all all have different names. I mean, like you know, it's like the, the. they're not all called America Fest, but but they're effectively the same thing. And, and I have to say, I mean, you say poorly produced. I don't know. Like they kind of rock. I mean, I, maybe <laughs> maybe my maybe my standards are low because like otherwise I'm going to like QAnon conferences. But I mean, this is like so. I mean, this looks like uh, you know. I, I guess I would describe the aesthetics as like very like WWE. I mean, there's a lot of pyrotechnics. Of there's a lot of you know. I mean, one of the items we, we should talk about today. I mean, they have custom intro music, which strikes me as a very like wrestling thing. I mean, it, you know, in in perhaps. Perhaps the grimmest, uh, you know, segment of America Fest, Kyle Rittenhouse, who really is like speed running his like right wing uh, hero thing and really leading into it. I thought I thought it might take a couple months, but but he appeared and they had uh, like an intro music for him that I believe is kind of a little hard to make out the lyrics. But I think it says written house in the house, written house in the house. So, you know, I mean, I don't think we broke the songwriting budget on that one. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so it, it's just like a, a sort of fat phantasmagora of the 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 alter e- the, of, of the American right. Have you already started digging in on trying to figure out who recorded and wrote the Kyle Rittenhouse walk on music? I mean, I, if I, I <laughs> if I had the powers of your godly assignment editor. I would probably force you to spend at least a day getting to the bottom of this. Yeah, I mean, I have to assume it's like one of these like famous, uh, you know, Swedish guys who writes all the songs and maybe they're, they're doing a little ghostwriting uh, on the side for TPUSA. I mean, but this is like one thing I want to stress about this this event is, you know, I mentioned that TPUSA has kind of like a, attracted a lot of gravity in the conservative movement. And on one hand, you know, you could say they're being outflanked on the right among young people by the likes of the, the white nationalist groypers. I mean, certainly I think 
their their crowds get heckled a lot by these guys. But on the other, like it's really incredible to me. I mean, I, I, I feel like these TPUSA events actually get a lot more attention than CPAC does. It, it, certainly in the pandemic era, they get a lot more like heat on them. I think they get better speakers. You might say, like, aren't these for? Children? I mean, aren't these for like college students and, and, and high school students? But you may remember like they, they had one the the last TPUSA big thing was there was like a lot of drama because an adult film actress showed up and on one, people were like, what is she doing at this high school event? Well, you know, on one hand, fair point. But on the other, what are all these other adults doing there? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like the, I wrote recently about uh, th- this congressional candidate who got kicked out, and he's like, "They kicked me out of the high school conference." And it's like, okay, well, I mean, there's some like in, in, in conservative intrigue here going on, but but also like, w- it, 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 like, what does it say about the state of this movement that it's just like I can't be, you know, I, I have to be at the you know the Saved by the Bell uh, conservative convention, right? I mean, it's been a long running joke, but not really a joke about uh, Turning Point USA. And uh, Charlie Kirk's whole uh, alleged college base apparatus that everything they put on, whatever production values they devote to it, is not really to attract the young. Like you can look at any poll that's come out in recent years. There is a dramatic partisan gap when you look at younger people and younger voters, particularly people on college and university campuses in America. What this is, is mostly to market TPUSA to older people, older Republicans, wealthy, perhaps elderly Republican donors, for instance. I I mean, and I'm not doubting that TPUSA does have presences on college campuses here and there, but broadly speaking, like, this is an operation that targets elderly Americans who are afraid that every time they drive outside of their gated community that they're going to get carjacked by Eric Holder himself or something like that. I think a lot of it is is like, how do I, you know, and, and not just this. I mean, I, I think also a lot of the CRT stuff is like, how do I keep my kids or my grandkids from from thinking I'm a, you know, I, I'm an old reactionary and maybe TPUSA <laughs> will will prevent my grandkids from getting radicalized uh, to the left. OK, and but but let's go back to Kyle Rittenhouse for a moment, because as you pointed out, uh, not just among the TPUSA set, but among the CPAC set, among the leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, among basically just the GOP. He is now a folk hero. He's at the point of no return, and it looks like he's throwing his arms around it. There was obviously a lot of perversity and darkness to him being celebrated the way he has been, including at the TP USA America Fest, over what he did. But there was actually a moment where he was blasted by a conservative reporter who was attending the conference because they were believing that Kyle Rittenhouse was not being right wing enough. Yeah. So this is an interesting arc that I, I don't think we've dipped into before on the podcast, but basically after his acquittal, Kyle Rittenhouse did these interviews where sort of most relevantly for us, he, he accused Lynn Wood of essentially trying to imprison him and all this kind of stuff. But, but he also said, uh, you know, to paraphrase here, he said, I support black lives matter. Now, uh-huh. yeah, sure. This is, mm-hmm. There's kind of an obvious like r- maneuver here, which is to say, you know, the, like I'm not this kind of crazy right winger. Uh, you know, I, I actually support black lives matter, but for people further to the right than Kyle Rittenhouse, they said, what, you know, this guy, this is our, the, you know, this is our, 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 our new hero. And, you know, he's saying he likes black lives matter and he's plugging them. So, this all and, and then this kind of played into a lot of talk about like, oh, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse's handlers are you know pulling his strings and all this kind of stuff. So at this at, at America Fest, this this sort of 
quote unquote, like independent right wing reporter, he goes up to Kyle Rittenhouse and he says, you know, Kyle, like, why do you support BLM, all this stuff? So this guy essentially gets, I think, detained by security and booted out. It's always interesting when these kind of like fractures appear at these events. Also, I mean, uh, whatever his intentions, that is a fair question. <laughs> I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse, oh, definitely yeah. have, def- Kyle Rittenhouse should definitely have a canned answer for that. <laughs> it shouldn't, yeah, it shouldn't be right. a beyond the bounds question for a public figure such as he. Right, right. I mean, it doesn't seem that crazy to me. So the other, I think, highlight, I mean, there's all these, these kind of events have all these kind of bizarre moments, like Sebastian Gorka kept talking and talking and talking. And so they, they cut his mic and then, oh, you know, it's cancel it, culture, all, all this like rock and music. Haters. Comes out. I think most, most incredibly, the prankster prince himself, James O'Keefe comes out and does this Best like, man at your wedding. Yeah, right. This, this very like kind of bizarre dance sequence that kind of like was you know, it was out of one of these kind of like cocaine fueled 80s dance movies like The Apple or something where where he's like, you know, I got my whistleblowers, Carrie Porch, CNN. And this guy comes out and then like he is kind of like the cavalcade of whistleblowers. It really looks like the people who are being trotted out on stage are utterly to the marrow of their bones convinced what they're doing makes them look cool. Like they're starring in a Rihanna music video. <laughs> well, I mean, they sort of are cool. In you know, in that milieu, it's striking to me. I mean, James O'Keefe really is. I don't know if I'd say at the the top of his powers right now. He certainly seems to be everywhere on the right. But you know, it's interesting to me how this guy is is able to get like he he's a song and dance man, right? Like at his heart, he's a theater kid. We know he recently was in a performance of Oklahoma, but how he's able to get people to watch him perform like at all these events. And I think part of it is generally these events are super boring. People want to give really boring speeches with no care for their audience's time. And so then you have a guy who says, well, I just want to sing a song from Oklahoma. And you might say, well, that mixes it up. I'll take it. But I mean, it's just really incredible to me that that he has managed to get in a position where he can just sort of subject these audiences to his singing and dancing, seemingly for, you know, no real political purpose, but just because he feels like it. Like failed theater kids will destroy us all. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.